In September 1968, Richard Nixon was on a losing streak. He'd lost his bid for the presidency a few years earlier, and not too long after that, he'd run for and lost California's governor seat. His last, best chance for the White House depended, in part, on a sketch comedy show. Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In Laugh-In was known for its irreverent jokes and its one-liners, but that night, it was part of Nixon's comeback tour. Sock it to me? (laughs) The Laugh-In cameo was just one line. He was on screen for just four seconds, but it made Nixon seem with it, like a guy who could take a joke and maybe even crack one. TV helped Nixon reinvent himself. And decades later, another future president did the same thing. I own buildings all over the place, model agencies, the Miss Universe pageant, jetliners, golf courses, casinos, and private resorts like Mar-a-Lago. In reality, Trump's businesses were floundering. But on reality TV... I've mastered the art of the deal and have turned the name Trump into the highest quality brand. And as the master, I want to pass along my knowledge to somebody else. I'm looking for The Apprentice. Richard Nixon and Donald Trump, two presidents who used TV to turn massive failures into political success. From the Vox Media Podcast Network and Vox.com, this is Primetime, a show about the power of television and how it affects and reflects our culture. I'm your host, Todd Vanderwerf. This season, we've brought you stories about TV and the presidency. Today, in our season finale, we're looking at two presidents who use TV to reinvent themselves. Richard Nixon discovered how TV could make or break a political career. He had big successes and big flops and he set a precedent for politicians who came after him, especially Donald Trump. Both men used television to craft an electable persona, and they shared a secret weapon, one of the most powerful men in TV history, Roger Ailes, who helped both presidents shape their image. In 1952, Dwight Eisenhower selected Richard Nixon as his running mate just as TV was really taking off. Four years earlier, less than 1% of Americans owned a TV set. By 52, nearly a third of Americans had one. And that came in handy in September, when Nixon's vice presidential quest hit a snag, just two months before the election. A rumor broke that he had a secret slush fund for his campaign that he was profiting off of. Nicole Hemmer is a professor at the University of Virginia. She studies the history of conservatism. That almost ended Nixon's vice presidential ambitions. Eisenhower considered taking Nixon off the ticket. And so Nixon, rather than appealing to Eisenhower to stay on the ticket, instead went directly to the American people on television to give a speech laying out his finances and defending himself from these accusations. The best and only answer to a smear or to an honest misunderstanding of the facts, is to tell the truth. Nixon concluded with a folksy little story about a puppy a campaign supporter sent to his daughters. 
and our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep him. For Americans who watched the speech in 1952, it was almost revolutionary. A major politician was right there, just across from them, in their living rooms. Television offered an opportunity to make an emotional connection with the people who were watching, with the people at home. And Nixon really plays that to his advantage. Watch it today, and the checker speech seems a little hokey. Nixon doesn't quite know where to look, and when he stands up or ambles over to his wife, Pat, who has been sitting just off camera, it's so choreographed that it feels stiff and unnatural. But this is also the first major televised political speech to show how intimate TV could be. And even if Nixon is an awkward performer, the emotions of this speech, they feel genuine. The Checker's speech helped put the allegations against Nixon to rest. He was actually innocent. And Eisenhower won the 1952 election. Eisenhower and Nixon served for two terms, and then Nixon took his own shot at the Oval Office against John F. Kennedy. In September of 1960, the two faced off in a presidential debate. It was the first one ever broadcast on TV. And now the opening statement by Vice President Richard M. Nixon. Smith, Senator Kennedy, the things that Senator Kennedy has said, many of us can agree with. Nixon had just spent eight years as vice president. In terms of experience, he had Kennedy beat. But in the near decade since the Checkers speech, television had changed. Now, Nixon had TV experience, and he thought he could come off as authentic. And for him, this means not having makeup put on. But going into the debate, Nixon wasn't doing so hot. He was sick. He'd injured his knee. He'd lost weight, so his clothes didn't fit. Put bluntly, he looked like crap. Worse, he was unprepared. He also didn't do his homework in this case. He didn't go over to the studio where the debates were going to be filmed. And so he didn't see how the lights were going to be set up, how the podium was going to be set up, what the backdrop looked like. Meanwhile, Kennedy looked like a movie star. He was well-rested. He was tanned. He came in having already looked at the studio setup. And one of the things that he noticed was how light the background was going to be. And so he changes suits. He puts on a darker suit so that he will stand out against the background. Nixon had on a light gray suit and kind of blended into the background. And Nixon's problems just continued from there. He's constantly like trying to look into the eyes of the audience, but there are multiple cameras. And so he's constantly shifting his eyes back and forth. He's constantly watching the clock and he comes off as shifty in that debate. And people were expecting by 1960, someone who was more relaxed, more at ease before the cameras. Going into the debates, Nixon had the lead in the polls, but Kennedy won the presidency that November. More than half of all voters said they had been influenced by the first debate, and that made TV matter even more for candidates to come. The thing that politicians took away from it, including Nixon, was that you had to be better on television than Nixon was, that image really mattered, that parties should nominate 
charismatic people who did well on television and that candidates really had to prepare to be effective on that medium. After losing the presidential election and the California governor's race two years later, Nixon took some time off. He wanted to figure out what went wrong, why he'd lost. And one of the big conclusions that he drew was exactly this point about television and about media, that Kennedy was really good at it, Nixon wasn't good enough at it, and Nixon needed to learn how to be better. For inspiration, he looked to another rising California politician. He actually studied the person who did successfully win the governorship of California four years after Nixon lost, and that was Ronald Reagan. Taking a cue from Reagan, Nixon started doing more television interviews. In 1967, he went on a popular daytime talk program, The Mike Douglas Show. While on set, he met someone who would change his life, a young producer named Roger Ailes. He's talking to Roger Ailes before he goes on, and he's complaining about the fact that he has to do these kind of you know, throwaway, not very serious kinds of television appearances. And Roger Ailes responds, and he's just like, these are not unimportant. These are some of the most important things that you can be doing as a candidate. And sort of makes the case for why these television appearances matter so much. Nixon hired Ailes to join his campaign as a media advisor. And according to longtime journalist Dan Rather, now host of Access TV's The Big Interview, Nixon learned a lot from his TV mentor. Nixon was taught by Roger Ailes that one must seek to command any landscape that you occupy. That when you walk into a room, when you walk in front of a television set, wherever you are, you must seek to command the the whole area. It's what old Hollywood actors used to call having command of the set. Ailes understood that Nixon wasn't a natural on TV. So he launched a media strategy to make Nixon seem more likable. He created a forum where Nixon could control the conversation, a staged series of live town halls with a studio audience, and a pre-selected panel of voters. Tonight from Atlanta, live and in color, the Nixon Answer. Tonight, Richard Nixon in person is going to face a panel of citizens asking the questions they want answered. These forums did help Nixon but he still wasn't connecting with younger voters. We're hitting a point in American history where suddenly authority is coming under question, where suddenly hierarchies are coming under question. And you see that in the culture. You see it in a more irreverent culture, a more playful culture. And Nixon understands that too. Nixon got an opportunity to put that understanding to the test when a television producer asked him to appear on Laughing. Sock it to me? (laughs) As alien as it is, I think, for a lot of people to think about Richard Nixon as popular today, he was really popular as president. And I think that at least part of that has to be credited to his media strategy. Ailes helped Nixon craft a successful, electable TV persona. A nice guy. A relatable guy. A guy who could take a joke. Nixon won the 1968 election and then won re-election in a landslide four years later. Of course, the Watergate scandal eventually took Nixon down. But his media advisor had a long career ahead of him. 
how Roger Ailes and reality TV gave rise to Donald Trump after the break. Welcome back to primetime. TV was just getting started when Richard Nixon came on the national scene, but our current president is a product of it. Television and media were the basis of his success. James Ponawazik is a television critic for the New York Times. He's also the author of the upcoming book, Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television, and the Fracturing of America. He was somebody who craved celebrity, craved attention, and then found ways of leveraging celebrity and attention into business notoriety and then eventually into political notoriety. Like Richard Nixon, Donald Trump found early success on TV. But later in his life, when his business was on the rocks, Trump turned to TV for reinvention. He learned to play a version of himself, Donald Trump, the character. And that propelled him all the way to the White House. From the beginning, Trump seemed comfortable in front of the camera. And that confidence only grew over time. In the 1980s, he made the rounds. Letterman, 60 Minutes, Oprah. You took out a full-page ad in uh, major U.S. newspapers uh, last year criticizing U.S. foreign policy. What would you do differently, Donald? I'd make our allies, forgetting about the enemies, the enemies you can't talk to so easily, I'd make our allies pay their fair share. We're Trump honed his TV persona over the course of the decade, and that came in handy a few years later. Beginning of the 90s, his uh, businesses tank. He goes into prepackaged bankruptcy. His marriage with Ivana falls apart. The only thing he had left was his brand. So he had to pretend it was still worth something. His principal job becomes playing the character of Donald Trump. In other words, in his business, uh, he's given a stipend by his creditors in order to keep up appearances because they know that the value of the business depends on the brand Trump that he's created. To help keep up these appearances, Donald Trump became a caricature of himself on primetime television. That's the time when he starts doing all these sitcom cameos. There was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It is my esteemed pleasure to introduce Mr. and Mrs. Donald Trump. Mr. Donald! Oh, my God! Carlton was very excited. Trump was on Spin City, a sitcom set in the New York City mayor's office, starring Michael J. Fox. Mr. Trump here wrote The Art of the Deal. Then he wrote a new bestseller, The Art of the Comeback. Two books. Wow. (laughs) True to form, Trump walks in the mayor's office and sits down in his seat. Well, sit down. (laughs) He becomes sort of this walking, trash-talking synecdoche for... New York and, you know, ambition. He's not Donald Trump anymore, but he is the useful symbol because people got accustomed to him in the 1980s. So even though Trump's businesses were failing, Americans saw him over and over again on TV playing a successful real estate mogul. And that image stuck. Now that made him the natural choice for Mark Burnett to cast in The Apprentice. Mark Burnett was the executive producer of The Apprentice. He co-created the show with Donald Trump. And Burnett knew... Reality TV is a field of art that's almost entirely about symbolism. 
survivor is this highly symbolic idea of nature. The bachelor is this collection of symbols of love. And the apprentice was this collection of symbols of what does business success look like? Trump represented all of those symbols. Skyscrapers, private jets, gold toilets. So even as Trump's businesses were failing, Trump's TV cameos burnished his successful persona. And then The Apprentice solidified that idea for millions of American voters. And then Trump found another outlet, thanks to an old friend of Richard Nixon's, Roger Ailes. Ailes started Fox News in 1996, and in the run-up to President Obama's 2012 re-election, he invited Donald Trump on Fox and Friends for weekly appearances. Trump seized the opportunity. Either he wasn't born in the country, or he doesn't have a birth certificate that, or or there's something on the birth certificate that he doesn't want people. What do you think that could be? I don't know. I mean, maybe it says maybe it says he's Muslim. The accusation that Barack Obama had been born outside of the United States was steeped in racism and xenophobia. But Trump took birtherism from the dark corners of the internet to a wide audience. His second career as a Fox News personality led to the political and ultimately President Trump of the 2010s. Trump's Fox and Friends cameos helped him enter the political arena. And he drew on his reality TV training during the first Republican debate on Fox News in August 2015. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Trump knew that if you could keep your cool, utter shamelessness played really, really well. Your Twitter account Only Rosie O'Donnell. No, it wasn't. Importantly, Trump never seemed like he'd lost control in these moments. Even when he said things that made him seem out of control, he knew exactly how to position his body for the cameras so that every little gesture he made had maximum impact. He knew how to wait out crowd reactions. He just got it. This first debate was Trump's TV persona in a nutshell. Totally boorish, but so in command of how he appeared on TV that you couldn't help but watch. The Trump and Fox News story, of course, didn't end there. He continues to be a regular presence on the network, even as president. Ailes, however, was forced out of Fox News for sexual harassment in the summer of 2016. But he quickly found a new job on Donald Trump's presidential campaign. He helped Trump prepare for the debates against Hillary Clinton. Uh, but what we want to do is to replenish the Social Such a Security nasty Trust woman. Fund. Thanks, in part, to Roger Ailes, Donald Trump and Richard Nixon used television to create characters for themselves. A successful businessman who tells it like it is. A charming everyman with a sense of humor. But one other thing unites Nixon and Trump. Their bookends. Nixon wasn't the very first president of the TV era, but he was the first politician to realize how TV would change everything first through a major success, and then through a devastating loss. And television will still be important to political campaigns long after Donald Trump is out of office. But it's hard to imagine another president as fluent in its rhythms as he is. Yet, TV's influence has also waned on his watch, just a little bit, in favor of social media. As Trump's Twitter feed has surely made you aware... 
So if Nixon and Trump are bookends to the era of the TV president, the first and the last, then what should we take away from them? How should we understand what it means to be a president on TV? Charisma and authenticity are important, certainly. But Nixon and Trump show us a different way forward. All you really have to do is whatever it takes to be watchable. Trump even has catchphrases, for God's sake. We are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. So yeah, presidents have used TV to their own advantage. And for the last six decades, it's always been there for them. But it's also been shaping how we think about the guy who holds the fate of the world in his hands. It's important to think about the man, yes, but also the screen that brings him into our homes week after week and makes him seem like just another TV character. The president may be powerful, but so is TV. And TV is always, always on. That's it for season one of Primetime. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And you can find me on Vox.com and on Twitter at TVOTI to vote. Primetime is produced by Bridget Armstrong. We're edited by Isaac Kestenbaum. Mixing and scoring by Gautam Shrikishan. Theme music by Brandon McFarland. Thanks to Rebel Talk Studios and our engineer Ernesto Hurtado. Our researcher is Michelle Delgado. Our social media manager is Lexi Shapittle. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Jillian Weinberger is the senior producer of audio at Vox. Special thanks to Eleanor Barkhorn, Allison Rocky, and Jen Trollio. I'm your host, Todd Vanderwerf. Thank you so much for listening.